Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture, in order from the very first award ceremony to someday the present year. When we've watched all of the movies in a particular year, we will tell you if the Academy chose right and why. I'm your host, Susan Araslin. I'm your other host, David Daw. And this week we are discussing The Private Life of Henry VIII, which was nominated for the 1932-1933 Academy Awards. Yep, yep. So last week I said that this movie sounded like it was fan fiction written about Henry VIII and his numerous marriages. And I just want to go ahead and say that I'm very proud of me for predicting that because that is totally what this is. Yeah. You know what this also, I mean, uh, you sent me a text that made me think I was going to enjoy this movie. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to deceive you. (laughs) Um, yeah. The other thing that really, that this movie reminded me of a lot besides like history nerd fan fiction is You know that thing in time travel shows where they, like, meet Abraham Lincoln for eight seconds and he goes, I'll never be a successful politician. And then they, like, wink at the camera and then you're off to their next adventure. Every fucking character in this movie did that. Yeah? There was so much, like, my daughter Elizabeth is a dumb idiot who could never rule England. Like, just... Completely non sequitur lines that are just there for the history nerds. Right. Oh, it was definitely full of winks to the to the English Reformation history nerds. So I feel ridiculous talking about the plot of this movie because how many movies and books and television shows have been made about this? The other thing about it is because of that, I feel like this movie really suffers as far as standing the screen test of time because there have been so many different things that have told this same story and often better. I mean, it's the story of Henry VIII's wives from like the very tail end of number two to number six. With a special, I would say a special emphasis on Catherine Howard, on the fifth wife. Which was definitely unusual. Usually the story focuses on Catherine and the divorce going into Anne Boleyn. This starts on the day that she's being executed. Which, like, okay, that's a that's a unique take that I haven't seen in other versions of this. The thing is, that though, there's, like, there's nothing in here that you didn't get out of your high school history book, basically. It is not a particularly deep dive. It is kind of an emotional deep dive and like a weirdly sympathetic to Henry VIII emotional deep dive into his wives. But like it doesn't really go deep on the history and who these people are and why they are this way. You just kind of get introduced to characters and they're like, we're in love. And then it's back to somebody else. It also definitely takes a lot of historical liberties, not the least of which is in Henry being this gluttonous goofball, which I think this was probably the beginning of that portrayal that we get a lot where it's like every version of Henry is based on that one painting of him when he was like in his 50s or whatever and there has been in contemporary portrayals of this like 
a movement away from that of like, no, there was a time where he was like young and hot and athletic. There is no young, hot and athletic Henry in this movie at all. <laughs> but the the portrayal of Anne of Cleves is the one where, I mean, they basically are setting up a totally ridiculous comedic portrayal of her. And I felt for that part of it, like I was watching an Ernst Lubitsch film. Yes, and actually I will say that was my favorite part of the film. It was mine too, and I hated myself <laughs> for it. Because the whole thing of like, oh, she's actually gorgeous, but he's like, oh, she's hideous because she's making a goofy face at me. And then they like play a, ca- a game of cards where she wins a divorce. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was just straight out of an Ernst Lubitsch film. What are your thoughts on this movie? Um, you know, I can't tell when this movie wants to be funny always. Occasionally I can, and then it's, like, kind of insulting. Like, I will say there are some funny bits in this. I think the stuff about courtly hypocrisy and, like, weird rules around, like, what the king is and isn't allowed to do is, like, funny. And there's a great bit with, like, the audience at Anne Boleyn's execution very early in the film that is genuinely funny where this woman in the audience is just like, Oh, it's just, it's a shame. It's a shame what's happening to her. I just, I can't watch this ma'am. Could you please move your hat? I cannot see the stage. The funniest parts of this movie are definitely the peanut gallery commoner comments. Yes. More so than anything that takes place at court. When I sent you that text that was like, this is actually funny. It was all that beginning part where the commoners have their like goofy jokes that they tell. That falls away about halfway into the movie into like a really genuinely like, it's not really effective, but like, they genuinely care about the emotional state of Henry VIII um, in a way I was not expecting generally and especially from a comedy. Also in a movie that does not necessarily portray him in a way that is sympathetic. It's like the movie is sympathetic to him, but how could you be sympathetic to him watching it? Yeah, the very first thing that happens is he's having his wife executed on the basis of bullshit. And then by the end, it's like, such a shame what happened about his wife cheating on him. And it's like, what are you, what? Why, what? No. Like, to be fair, this movie makes Catherine Howard seem insane. Yes. But like, it is still honest enough about who Henry VIII was that at the end where you're like supposed to be really there with him in the room while he just like can't stand that he has to have this wife executed. You're like... I don't know, man. Maybe di- don't execute the first. What? Are, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> Maybe stop. Stop killing people. You know, just throwing that out yeah. there. It also felt like this movie wanted to be all things to all people. It wanted to be deeply serious at times, and it wanted to have these like total vaudeville jokes at other times it wanted us to care about henry but then it also has him say stuff like jane seymour who he apparently loves the most of all of his wives he straight up calls an idiot in front of everybody yeah genuinely i the movie seems sympathetic to his point of view that you should only ever marry a complete moron because that was tragic that she died except that uh, the way that he was to Jane, I was I was kind of like, 
You know, maybe death is is a relief for her because being married to somebody who in front of the entire court is like, you are, you're stupid. That's, that's horrible. And then Anne of Cleves gets one over on him by making a goofy face and then beating him at cards. So I'm like, "Mm, was Jane stupid or are you just a dipshit, Henry? Yeah, he's really dumb through the entirety of this thing, but like inconsistently dumb in this way that like is irritating to me because it keeps doing this weird tonal shift and this weird like what it's going for shift where like sometimes it's supposed to be this like farcical portrayal of like, this privileged king that doesn't fucking know anything. And then sometimes it's supposed to be like, oh, this poor guy just can't get it right with women. And what? (laughs) Yeah, and then of course his last wife, Catherine Parr, is this domineering shrew. And he's like, oh man, six wives and the best of them's the worst. And it's like, well, in what respect is she the best of them? The fact that she runs your household because you're a jackass? Thank you. What does that mean? (laughs) Is it like a reference to something? Why is that our fucking exit line? Also, which of them is the best who is also the worst? Is that supposed to be Catherine Parr? Because that could actually apply to basically fucking any of them. Uh, certainly from from his perspective. And the part where Anne of Cleves comes back after he's all, you know, bummed out about Catherine Howard cheating on him and him having to execute her. And she comes back like the sort of angel of mercy who is like, look out there, Henry. Look out at all the women. You must select a wife. By the way... In that scene, a thing that I love is he is in this, like, Methuselah-esque old age makeup, and she looks fucking five years younger than the last time we saw her. (laughs) Well, that's only because she's not making the face. That's fair. (laughs) And he's like, oh, but I can't, you know, I'm, I'm old and I keep choosing the wrong ones. And she's like, well, don't pick a hot wife that you love. Just pick one who's, like, good with kids. It's a really bizarre moment because I don't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe like Henry and Anne of Cleves stayed like BFFs forever. That's, that's redundant. Maybe they stayed BFFs, but I seriously doubt it. Yeah. I, the other thing that's like weird about that is that it's set up in the earlier like card game for divorce scene that she's going to help him find a wife someday. And so it's like, oh, here's the payoff. But then the portrayal of Catherine Parr is a fucking, like, everybody loves Raymond-esque marriage, am I right? (laughs) Like, it's she puts him in this nightmare marriage, and it's supposed to be that, like, then why did you set up that she's the one doing this? Like, what? Why did we why did we spend time on this? Oh, interestingly enough, I'm now reading that Anne of Cleves actually disliked Catherine Parr. Okay, that makes it even like more bizarre. Yeah. And then the the Anne of Cleves is played by uh, Charles Lawton, the, the lead's actual wife in real life. But then this is a wildly unsympathetic thing to have Anne of Cleves do. It puts her in an extra scene, but that extra scene is 
her setting him up in a marriage where he's miserable. The relationship that Anne of Cleves has with some dude where, like, she's sort of in... I, I... What is the relationship that she has with someone? Is that her brother or, like, who who was that? I don't know. There's a lot of just some guy in this movie. There's a lot of just some guy in this movie. It's like Henry VIII and maybe occasionally Thomas Cromwell. But also toward the end, I was like, is that Cromwell or is that not Cromwell? But... Basically, outside of Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell, every time a dude appears, it's like, who's this guy? <laughs> Have we seen him before? Are are they... <laughs> Am I supposed to remember them? The whole relationship that Catherine Howard has with whoever her some guy is, like, who was that? I, I thought that Catherine Howard's whole relationship started after she was married to Henry, but maybe... I'm wrong. It seems like it does. I spent the whole time going like she wasn't married before she was married to Henry, right? Because the way Thomas Culpepper acts the whole fucking movie is like Catherine is cheating on him. And then she's like, I guess I've decided I finally love you now at the most inconvenient possible fucking time with when it's just stupid as shit for me to decide that. <laughs> After, like, five years of telling you to go fuck off because I want to marry the king. I've always felt like the the actual story of Catherine Howard was a little bit, uh, she was not the brightest because she was Anne Boleyn's cousin. So you'd think that you'd be like, hey, maybe I shouldn't marry this guy and cheat on him because I know exactly what happens when he thinks that his wife is cheating on him. Right, and the movie wants to make it like she's his smartest wife, but she's brought down by this just uncontainable love for Thomas Culpepper, which, like, is very strange, because it then ends up in this thing where she's, like, very intelligently and, like, coldly maneuvered her way into being queen and then is like yeah but fuck that like i like <laughs> it just it does a complete 180 where like as far as i know that's not i that's not really how it went down oh man apparently thomas culpepper was also related to catherine cool 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 these people need to stop banging their cousins. This really, to me, seems like a real, like, argument for concentrate on one or two of the wives, which is, of course, what we start doing with Henry VIII's portrayals after this. Don't do the History Channel special where we do, like, everything that ever fucking happened to Henry VIII. <laughs> like, really zero in on something. And this movie almost wants to zero in on Catherine Howard, but then, like, spends so much time on the other wives that her motivations just seem totally insane. And Thomas Culpepper is in no way charming in this. I'm like, really? That guy? Yeah. She, she loses her shit over this guy? He is a complete domineering asshole to her. And then when literally she's got to know the only way this ends is her getting her head cut off and she's supposed to be an intelligent person, she goes, hmm, maybe the domineering shithead. She's already married to a domineering shithead, so, you well, know, I guess. Yeah, I guess she has a type. But, like, <laughs> her actual stated thing is, like, Thomas, you were right. Like, it's 
it's about love. You have to love them. I, it has to be someone that I'm desperately in love with, like you. And, okay, what? Like, there's a whole lot of that in this movie, where people will just declare, apropos of nothing, that they would rather die than not marry this one specific person. And it's like, I don't know, Henry VIII seems okay with, like, five or six tries. Maybe got like maybe fall back and, and go for round two, guys. <sighs> so I guess it couldn't have been Cromwell at the end, though, because Cromwell was executed the day that he married Catherine Howard. Though, of course, like, this movie plays pretty fast and loose with historicity, so who knows? God, here's one of the most fascinating things I've just now learned about this movie. The weird king's nurse character that's constantly putting a charm under the bed so that the king has sons instead of daughters. Yes. Is played by a woman who in real life is named Lady Tree. <laughs> no, she's not. <laughs> oh my god, she totally is. Um... That was not her given name, though. No. Oh, but but she married Herbert Beerum Tree, who became Sir whatever, so she became Lady Tree. Yep. That seems like a weird thing for her to be in a movie at all. I feel like in 1930 that the English were still like, oh, acting, that's not a thing for people with a title to do. Though it's not like an inheritable title, so like maybe it's not that big of a deal. I don't know. Lady Tree, because I'm not reaching at all for something else to say about this movie. Hey everybody, it's David. I just wanted to take a quick moment to remind you that if you haven't yet, uh, subscribing to us on iTunes, liking us on iTunes, reviewing us on iTunes, doing all that in other podcasting apps, all helps get more listeners to the podcast, which means that I can also do ad breaks and like, hey, have you guys tried Casper mattresses? Well, don't until we tell you to. That's right, Casper. We're holding you ransom. That's bad, probably. That's probably illegal. Susan, maybe cut this part. Susan? Susan? I want to compare it to more recent depictions of this sort of this story because i obviously couldn't stop thinking about them while watching it have you seen wolf hall or read it no it's really good you should it's excellent okay so wolf hall focuses on cromwell but starts with like catherine and the first catherine and anne boleyn and it's amazing and it actually manages to make henry sympathetic because he's being manipulated by so many mm-hmm. external political things where, like, maybe Anne Boleyn wasn't really banging her brother and a bunch of other people, but she was kind of awful. And the some guys that surround the court are actually, like, fleshed-out human beings who have motivations other than doing whatever the king wants. And I think one of the things that makes this movie, I don't want to say boring, makes Henry unsympathetic is that he doesn't seem to have any kind of check on his slightest whim, which was definitely not the actual case. And maybe that's why they start with the execution of Anne Boleyn instead of all the stuff with his divorce from Catherine, because they couldn't portray him as getting whatever he wants whenever he wants, 
which is what is supposed to make the Catherine Howard thing have more emotional punch is it's like the first time in his life where he didn't get what he wanted but he doesn't get what he wants like all the time it's weird because the movie kind of wants to have it both ways it wants him to be able to do whatever he wants because it wants this portrayal of him as like this mercurial like boy king that's never had to learn how to hear no but it also wants to box him in so he's not responsible for his own actions And, like, creates these why-the-fuck-is-he-listening-to-these-people situations. Like which one? Why he agrees to marry Anne of Cleves at all in the first place. Uh, but, yeah, that I, I didn't really understand. I understand it historically, was that Cromwell was like, you've got to get married and have a kid. Another one. Yeah. But, like, in the context of this film, where he can just tell everybody to fuck off whenever he wants and does, it's like, what? They just nagged him enough that he did it? You kind of have to pick one or the other. And, honestly, you kind of have to pick the second one, because the first one just, his his life story doesn't make any sense. If you make it that he can just do whatever he wants whenever he wants, and not that, like, he's, you know, not that he was entirely innocent and a great dude, but, like, there were these, like, large forces of state pushing him around. And he was, like, constrained in these, like, he had to come up with reasons why he was getting rid of wives. If he could do literally whatever he wanted, he didn't have to do that. I've always wondered about the whole Anne of Cleves thing historically, because, like, apparently he was just super unattracted to her. And I've seen paintings of her and, like, comparing her to any of his other wives and, like, well, but they basically all look the same. What was the issue here? God, that would have been a great bit if Lawton's wife just played all five of them. Now, see, that's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Just with, like, slightly different wigs. Yeah, that would have been amazing. But, yeah, his whole thing is that he was sent a painting by, I think, Holbein or somebody. And he was like, oh, yeah, she's pretty. And then the French ambassador told him, like, yeah, she's, you know, she's, she's great. And then she shows up at court and they're like, nope, <laughs> she really wasn't. It's like, what, do you you just want to marry, like, teenage Boleyns? Is that it? Like, that's your only type? I just, I love, <laughs> it's mostly just I love that there was a 16th century, oh, you don't look like your profile photo. We have to cut this Tinder <laughs> date off immediately. Except that, like, they just got married. Yeah. Which makes it a little more inconvenient. It's like you get married and at your divorce, it's like, what's your reason for filing? Well, she didn't look like her Tinder profile pic. And they're like, yeah, seems legit. (laughs) Marriage annulled. Like, what? (sighs) I'm trying to think of like other things in this movie that were actually pretty good. Because I feel like we've just gone into, this wasn't good. There are a lot of other good portrayals of Henry VIII here are ways this could have been a better portrayal of Henry VIII. And I'm afraid, like, every time I go into something that's funny about it, I'm going to be like, why didn't we make that movie? Like, why didn't we make a, like, on the ground, what this looks like to just random servants in the palace comedy about Henry VIII? Because those are all the funniest parts. The part where, like, he keeps saying no one saw him and the entire royal guard is outside of Catherine Howard's room. (laughs) That was pretty amazing. There are all of these bits where, like, seeing somebody who isn't the king looking at all of this 
is funnier than actually watching the king. Yeah, do you think they could have sustained that, though, for, like, a feature-length film? I do, especially with this kind of a format, where it's really kind of a series of, like, 20-minute vignettes. Because then you've got the time to, like, catch up with, like, what the chambermaid is doing with uh, when the fourth wife comes along or whatever. I think they could have done it, but I also do think, like, or just fucking pick a wife. Like, apparently that was the original plan. Originally, it was going to be, like, really focused on Anne of Cleves, and they were like, that's not enough for a movie, let's just put all of them in there. And, like, bad call. Should have stuck with Anne of Cleves. Well, if nothing else, just because Elsa Lanchester was hilarious. Yeah. Even though the scene where she comes back and is like, go and marry somebody who's good with children, while totally pointless i was glad to see her return because she had at least been charming and funny she apparently was the bride of frankenstein by the way oh not that you'd know because she doesn't have the makeup and the hair that also would have been amazing though (laughs) (laughs) she plays bride of frankenstein bride of henry the eighth but that's like that's how she gets him to not be attracted to her now, see, that would be hilarious, but Bride of Frankenstein came out afterwards, so the reference would be lost. <sighs> Except for future generations watching this for a ridiculous podcast project. Yeah, why don't more movies do references to things that haven't happened yet? <laughs> I feel like especially these early 30s movies really would have benefited from that. Yeah, where's my references to movies that I know and like? We could do a couple of winking JFK jokes in this movie, and I think it's a real shame we didn't. (laughs) Oh my god! (laughs) Um, That's dark. I mean, this movie definitely has dark moments, so, you know, (laughs) fine. Sorry, my cats are going absolutely apeshit. What was good in this movie? I I feel like there's definitely moments of humor in it that were good. Elsa Lanchester was good. Everly Gregg as Catherine Parr, I thought, was funny in the totally one-dimensional shrew role that she had, but she pulled it off. Honestly, I didn't like Charles Lawton in this movie. I didn't either. I found him to be tedious and childish and a bully yeah the script is clearly doing him no favors but he just doesn't thread the needle like henry the eighth never seems like a coherent person he just seems like this series of whatever he needs to be for the next scene to happen he just is concerned about totally random things for the sake of the plot and his mood and his emotional maturity and his intelligence just very wildly in this way that it doesn't seem like a portrayal. It just seems like a series of scenes. He made a very specific choice in portraying this character, but I don't feel like it was a well thought out one, which is just that everything Henry says is he thinks is hilarious. Every time he has a line, he ends it with, and you're like, are, are we really doing this for everything? That also really irritated me. <laughs> Because that was one of the reasons I couldn't tell what was supposed to be funny or not. Because sometimes he does that and then like everyone in the court laughs and it's clear it wasn't a very funny joke. But like everyone has to laugh when the king makes a joke. Right. And then sometimes he's got some fucking solid one-liners. Sometimes they're actually pretty good jokes. 
but he does the same thing both times. I wasn't clear on whether or not I was supposed to think like, oh, the court is laughing even though he just made this really cruel, unfunny joke, you know, because they have to. Or if the movie genuinely thinks it's hilarious that he just called his wife an idiot in front of all of the court of England. Yeah. Should we rate this movie so we just stop badmouthing it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we could. I guess we could do that. Oh, hmm. I'm going to give it a surprisingly sympathetic four. Oh, and, and why? Uh, because I think there are a lot of basically competent things about this movie. I kind of get why audiences at the time would have enjoyed this. It moves at a pretty clippy pace. There are some good performances here, even if the central performance isn't one of them. And, like, if you hate this scene, don't worry, a new one will come along and maybe it'll have a cute side character that says something funny. It's still not even, like, up to par, but, like, it is also not a total disaster. (laughs) Up to par. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) Ah, Catherine Parr jokes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, uh, cause see, I was gonna give it a three. I think that's fair. But I also feel like you actually mentioned things about it that were good that I didn't even consider in bringing it up to a three. So, like, one, I think that Anne of Cleves is funny. Two, I think that the comedy that involves the common people is, is actually pretty clever. And, like, it almost has, like, a proto-Monty Python quality to it. Like, not as funny, but I don't know, like, ask me when it's been 80 years from Life of Brian or what's the other one with King Arthur? Holy Grail. Maybe those jokes won't be as funny in 80 years. But there was that quality of, like, the common people actually are the cleverest people here (laughs) and everybody else is taking themselves way too seriously and is actually not that smart. Yeah. So I liked that about it. But you're right, it does move at a pretty, it has a good kicky pace. And the portrayals, while not necessarily amazing, they're there. Like, everybody kind of seems like they're in the same movie, even if the movie is a little bit absurd. And not absurd in a, like, not absurd in an absurdist way. Just, like, why are we putting this on? You know, it felt like when I was in middle school, my friends and I used to write plays that were like goofy silly lots of aside joke adaptations of fairy tales or like other famous stories and it felt like that so much of like very amateur silly retelling of a well-known story i would agree with that and like from the production history it seems like that's not that far off i mean i would totally believe the like possibly a pro- apocryphal story that they just thought Lawton looked like Henry VIII and were like, let's build a Henry VIII movie around Charles Lawton. Like, that's definitely what this feels like. Uh, I don't know if that's actually true, but it definitely feels true when you watch this movie. Oh, yeah, he looks like that statue. Let's make a movie about the fact that he kind of looks like that statue. Yeah. Which is not the best thing to build a movie around, turns out. You know the most sympathetic character in this movie? Who? Anne Boleyn. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. 
Because you don't see any of the stuff leading up to her execution. You just see her on the execution day. And they give her lines that are things that Anne Boleyn actually said historically. Like, you know, I have such a very little neck or whatever it is. When she's asking if it'll hurt when they cut off her head. And she's just tragic. Yeah. And it's such a, like we were saying earlier, it's such a weird choice of how to start the film off. When you want Henry VIII to be a sympathetic figure toward the end of the movie. Right, because there's no scheming in Boleyn. There's no like, oh, well, she did whatever she could so she could have power. And actually she was, you know, off sleeping with half of the court. It's just like this incredibly sad day where all of the ladies in waiting to Jane Seymour are like, oh, it's so sad that she's being killed. And even the common people who are saying things like, can you move because I can't see the execution, still seem to be pretty wholly on her side. So it is a bizarre choice to start it with, well, actually, he's kind of a monster. Yeah. So are you are you sticking with a three or are you going up to a four? I, I'm going to go up to a four. <laughs> okay. I feel like four is generous, but I'm, I'm feeling generous today. <sighs> I'll give it a four in memory of Anne Boleyn. <laughs> I could have gone either way from that argument. Like, yeah, you know what, though? Fuck this movie, because the opening's really weird. Was the other possibility. I mean, I'm also uh, I'm also OK with that. No, I, I feel like a four is I feel like a four is solid. It's a it's a generally competently made film of an amateurish idea and script. It's about as good of a movie as you could make if your inspiration was that you thought an actor looked like a statue. <laughs> yep. Yep. That is that is exactly right. Should people watch this movie? Don't. Don't watch this movie. Yeah. There's so many better Henry VIII movies, so many better books on Henry VIII, so many better TV shows. Watch Wolf Hall, because it's great. Google Henry VIII and pick something at random. <laughs> Or if you're, like, really into the fan fiction element, like, watch The Tudors. Yeah. Which is not a great show, but it's it's a hot show. You know, there's a lot of banging. Yeah, I also wish, like, I, I did kind of wish this movie was, like, gonna lean into that more. I mean, the title is definitely, like... Oh, the king's having sex. The private life of Henry VIII. And, and like, it winks at it a couple of times, but, like, it's 1933, and so they can't go full tutors on it. Yeah, but also calling it the private life of Henry VIII is, is something of a misnomer, because none of this is shit that isn't, like, taught to you in school. Yeah, there's, like, maybe five minutes of anything that would count as his private life. In the movie. Like when he goes into Catherine Howard's room and is all like making out with her and rubbing all up on her. That's like pretty much as hot as this movie gets. After that, it's all card games and nagging wives. (laughs) And ill-advised wrestling matches. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I forgot about the ill-advised wrestling match, which is like Uh, not even important. So don't worry about it. Nope. So next week... Is our first Frank Capra. Is it our first Frank Capra? It is. I thought Bad Girl or something was a Frank Capra. Oh, was it? There's something Frank Capra adjacent about it. Or maybe I was just saying it seemed like a proto-Frank Capra movie for no apparent goddamn reason. It does 
feel a little Frank Capra-ish, but it is not. Yeah, I guess I did that for no reason. So yeah, next week is our first Frank Capra movie, which is Lady for a Day. And I am, I'm excited because, okay, I can't, because I can't decide if this poster is good or not. (laughs) It's, it's busy. I mean, first of all, there's parts of it that I'm like, I love this, but do I love it because it's any good? Or do I just love it because there's a weird mustache twirling man in a top hat who's just a leering at other floating faces in the void above New York City? <laughs> I think it's probably the latter. Like, it's not a it's not a great poster. We have a bad history with this because the other movie that did it was Cimarron. But I do love it when a movie poster says something like, takes its place among the greatest pictures ever made! Exclamation point! (laughs) Five times the size of the rest of the font. Also, like, slow your roll, it's 1933. The greatest pictures (laughs) ever made haven't even come out yet. Well, see, that's what I love about it. It's like, we gotta get this in early before the really great pictures show up. (laughs) Like, let's make this claim now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... When it's like, oh yeah, it is better than old Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) Takes its place among the five movies that have yet come out that are good. (laughs) Uh, Well, with that in mind, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it next week. (laughs) Yep. Um, And until then, this, this was a movie. This was a movie. Like, I... I don't really have anything clever to say about it. It maybe should have been a TV show or a short, but it was a movie. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Oh, poor Anne Bullen. I do feel so sorry for her. Excuse me, madam. Do you mind taking off your hat? We can't see the block. Thank you so much.